Hey, good evening, everybody. It's a great pleasure for me uh, to chair this evening's uh, talk uh, on behalf of the Academy's Engineering and Computing Sciences Committee, who are the body who um, came up with this idea. So in a way, you're at the inaugural lecture of what may be an inaugural series of such lectures uh, that the Academy hopes to run in different locations around the country. Uh, so this is the first. And uh, I'd like to begin by asking the Secretary of the Royal Irish Academy, uh, Professor Eugene Kennedy, to introduce you, or to, to welcome you to Academy House. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's my pleasant task to welcome you all here uh, this evening to this first, as Tom said, uh, a lecture in a series that's going to go around the country. So you're getting it, uh, hearing it first. And I think the success of uh, today's event already with the numbers, despite a, a turn down in the weather and all. So you're all very, very welcome. Uh, the, the, I want to compliment the committee, the Engineering and Computer Science Committee, coming up with this idea of a lecture. And it moves around, as I say, I think it's maybe going to Cork and uh, Derry next, and then maybe go, uh, uh, another series then going on to Paul and so on. So it's helping the academy to reach out to the various centres around the, around the country. Uh, <coughs> the lecture, show me your data, and I'll tell you who you are. Sounds like a very good pickup line or something like that. <laughs> but it's an exploration of data-driven prediction. It's been presented by Brian McNamee. Now, it's very, very topical. Uh, because, as we all know, there's a huge interest in big data, uh, how to uh, get it and how to mine it and so on. And one of the largest research teams funded by Science Foundation Ireland is the Insight Data Centre. So it's a collection of several hundred people. So it's a, a very, very big topic of scientific interest, engineering interest, but also very great public interest. Because with data comes obligations, opportunities and so on. So Brian is a lecturer in the School of Computer Science at University College Dublin. He's a principal lecturer at the Centre for Applied Data Analytics Research there and a funded researcher at the Insight Centre for Data Analytics. He's also a director of training for the Analytics Store, a data analytics consultancy and training company. And uh, tonight's lecture will explore how big data is generated through online interactions and increased use of portable Wi-Fi enabled devices. It will demonstrate how big data is utilised in conjunct with predictive technologies to make predictions about our behaviours and preferences. And for the most part, the application of these technologies are benign, they're uncontroversial, everybody sees the, the, the good side of them, but sometimes other applications are much more questionable, and I'm sure Brian will give us a flavour of both sides of that argument. So I'm very much looking forward to your presentation. I'd ask you all to put your hands together and give Brian a very warm welcome. So thanks very much, and thanks to everybody for coming on a Tuesday night. It's, uh, it's great to see a big audience. Uh, what I'd like to do is start with a question. And the question is basically just how many people in the room brought a smartphone with them uh, tonight and have a phone in their pocket? So that's great. So it's probably around 3 quarters is what we'd expect, which is good. And given the audience that we have here, that's probably in or around there are about 100 phones that we've got or something close to that. And just by carrying your phones along tonight or throughout the, the rest of the day on your way, kind of since you got up and went to work this morning and coming here, amongst all of us, we've probably generated in and around 115 megabytes of data. Right? So just by carrying those devices in our pockets and doing the various bits and pieces that we do on those phones throughout the day. So we mentioned 115 megabytes of data. It's always interesting to stop and think about, well, what does that mean, uh, particularly in the the world we're in now where people talk about petabytes and exabytes and all kinds of things. 
But 115 megabytes of data, as an example, if we were to take all that data that's been generated out of our phones and write it all down, it would be about equivalent of not just one set of the, the books that the, the television series that people might know um, Game of Thrones is based on, but basically 10 sets of those books. And I was looking around the room today, and if we look at about shelf number five, it's about equivalent to the top row of the books across shelf number five there. And that's just one kind of interesting example of the amount of data that we generate in our day-to-day -day lives um, at the moment. But it's worth kind of digging into that a little bit and saying, well, what is that? Right? So given all that data that we're saying we generated, well, what is it actually made up of? And if we think of the way that we kind of typically use a device like a smartphone, um, it probably amounts to a lot of SMS messages. SMS messages are kind of less popular now. Um, probably an amount of phone calls. Right? That's not too bad. That's kind of obvious. Um, probably something in the region of 600 emails filling up our email boxes. A couple of kind of heavy users probably made maybe a YouTube video or two today, plus Instagram pictures. Maybe people were posting pictures on their way in here um, before they came into the lecture. So there's probably maybe eight, nine, ten, something like that, pictures that were posted uh, by people as we came into the room. The social network kind of power users amongst us, probably something in the region of about 30 tweets, uh, lots of Facebook likes and posts and bits and pieces like that. There's probably one or two people still clinging on to Foursquare. Foursquare is probably on its way out um, at this stage, but maybe a Foursquare check-in or two. And then things like WhatsApp and Snapchat and all those kinds of things. So maybe something in the region 20 uh, messages that people would have posted on those various, those various platforms. One or two kind of super healthy people amongst us possibly went on a run today and used their mobile phones to track those runs using apps like Strava or RunKeeper or something like that. And then we have kind of typical things that we do. So our smartphones are also obviously internet portals. So maybe around 100 Google searches um, and maybe visiting something like 160 or 200 uh, web pages. One of the interesting things there is those previous tasks, they're all kind of generating data. And we'd expect those to generate data. So we're writing a message um, or posting a picture or something like that. But when we do things like internet searches, visit web pages, or any other online activity that might take place, we also generate what people refer to as metadata. Uh, so when Edward Snowden uh, released all the documents that he did kind of last year, there was a lot of talk of metadata around that. And basically, metadata is the data that's stored whenever you perform an activity that describes that activity. So it doesn't store the actual content, but just the fact that something happens. So for example, if you visit a web page, the fact that you visited that web page at that time goes into a database somewhere. Uh, if you do a Google search, the fact that you've done that search goes, it gets registered in a database somewhere. And that all gets recorded and all builds up to this interesting picture that we can draw of ourselves. All those examples so far are examples of things that we do that we wouldn't be surprised to know explicitly generate data. So if you write a text message or if you post a picture to Instagram, you're kind of not surprising that that's generating a data trail behind you. There's also, though, a whole range of things that we do that implicitly generate data that we might be a little more surprised by. So as you walk around in a building like this, there's Wi-Fi routers dotted around this building. I was trying to find the one. I found the ones in the room outside. I can't find the ones. They're hidden behind the statues somewhere. Uh, but they're up there somewhere. Um, there's Wi-Fi routers in rooms like this. And as you move around the city and move around uh, wherever building you work in, every time you pass by those Wi-Fi routers, your phone has a little conversation with that Wi-Fi router. And we'll come back to that later on. But that gets recorded, or that at least that can get recorded. And if we were to take kind of the audience that we have today, probably across today, there might be something like 800 little breadcrumbs or little recordings of conversations between phones and Wi-Fi routers. 
Same thing happens with cell towers. So as you move around the city, you're connecting to various cell towers from your, your mobile operator. And again, all that gets recorded. Right? So the fact that you were there at that particular time using the particular device that you happen to have. And then lastly, in a lot of cases, your phone itself will record a set of little breadcrumbs tracking your location. Right? So the GPS sensor that you've got in your phone, it can repeatedly just say, oh, here I am, here I am, here I am, and record that information. And it does that, if, if that's enabled, it does that at a pretty impressive frequency. So there's probably something like two and a half thousand little location breadcrumbs that amongst all of us we've collected over the course of the day. And the interesting thing that we get from that is through all of these little implicit and explicit interactions, we build up this deep, rich, kind of interesting picture of all the things that we do on those phones, and that can tell us about our preferences, um, where we go, what we do, and in many cases, who we do it with. Mobile phone is one device. One of the interesting things that's happened over the, the last number of years, people would have been, become familiar with the term Internet of Things, which is a slightly overused buzzword, but it nicely captures all of the other devices that we can now connect online, so connect to the Internet, and collect data from. So a couple of examples of that are things like activity trackers. So we have a, a running group in UCD. And every time we go running, there's probably about enough computing power to launch half a dozen space shuttles strapped to various parts of people's body. So things like the, the iWatches or the Apple Watches one or Garmin watches, that'll track our activity, maybe monitor heart rates, uh, monitor temperature, all those different bits and pieces can generate an interesting uh, data stream. If you really want to get deep into it, this is one of the more interesting ones I saw recently. These are connected socks. Um, so these socks have a range of sensors embedded into the material, and they'll record the pressure that you, you place on various, bits and various parts of your feet as you run along. Um, so that the real uber nerd athletes uh, are wearing these when they go out running. After you finish running, you might want to come home, cook some food. Uh, this is an interesting Irish company called Drop who have created this connected weighing scales. Um, and it's a weighing scales, and it records all the different things that you might you, you weigh in it, obviously, and you follow recipes. And it can build up this interesting data trail of all the bits and pieces that you've cooked and eaten over a period of time. Uh, this, I think, is at the extreme end. Uh, I ordered one of these this week. Uh, this is called the Pacify. Uh, and just to know that it's kind of surprising to know that this exists. So this is uh, an internet-enabled soother. Uh, you give it to your baby, and it records a constant stream of temperature uh, that's brought to your mobile phone, and you can build up this great big data picture of your baby. Uh, very hard to think what you might do with that, uh, but it's good to know that it's out there, and you can collect that. And so that's, these are just a couple of examples, and there's loads more of all the different ways that we can record data about different parts of our lives. And when we put that together, with all of the kind of typical things that we do that we have been generating data for years, like your banking, your insurance, if you go to college, when you go to work, we build up this incredibly detailed picture of all different aspects of what we do, how we do it, where we do it, and like I say, maybe who we do it with. And it's not just one person. It's obviously all the people in the world who are building up this data. So we said in our little example here, the people in this room have generated like I say, something in the region of 100 megabytes worth of data. Today, in Ireland, there's something in the region of 2.3 million smartphones walking around. And every day, they're generating those sorts of volumes of data, spread that around the world. I think already there's more connected devices than there are people. Actually, there's a lot more. I think there's tens of times more connected devices spewing out data streams in the world today than there are people. 
So that's what brings us into when people use the phrase big data. Uh, that's what they're referring to a lot of times. Big data is kind of an overused phrase, uh, but I think the interesting part of it is it's easier to record data about more parts of our lives than it ever was before. I think that's what's different. We've been recording data for, for years and years. There's just much, much more of it that we can record these days. So what I want to do is just do one little example demonstration to show just how easy it is to record relatively rich amounts of data from people as they move around. And this brings us back to this idea of the Wi-Fi routers that I mentioned before. So as I mentioned before, there's Wi-Fi routers around all kinds of buildings, um, buildings like this, colleges, workplaces. And constantly, there's a little conversation that goes on between any connected devices and those Wi-Fi routers. Even if you haven't connected to the, the Wi-Fi network, say, in the, the building that we have here today, there's still a little conversation that's taking place between the phone that you have in your pocket and that Wi-Fi router. So they're all buzzing away, and they should be buzzing away there if I get my animation to work. Um, they're all buzzing away talking to each other. Uh, for the, the engineers and computer scientists in the room, it's the, the Wi-Fi standard is the 802.11 standard, and these guys are sending packets back and forth, constantly talking to each other. And the key thing that happens is your mobile phone constantly announces itself to any routers that are available. So when you came into this room, like I say, there's a router behind one of these busts. Um, somewhere around the ceiling, and your mobile phone announced itself to say, here I am, this is what I do, who are you? That little conversation that happens is, a, we talk about it as a packet of data, and one of the interesting things that we can do is we can insert ourselves into the middle of that conversation. So there's a technique people refer to as packet sniffing, um, and what packet sniffing does is just takes a device, sits in the middle of those conversations, and gathers them all up. So I ran a little packet sniffer, and this was our, our warning that we had on the, the way in there. I ran a little packet sniffer just before the talk and gathered up all those conversations that your mobile phones were having with the various routers in here. So on a, on a, I have a nice um, Mac laptop and the network card in there, I can put it into monitor mode and it can act as a packet sniffer for us. And so it should have connected up lots and lots of data. So if I jump out of this for a second, and scroll down, that's promising. And I'm going to run this. And hopefully, we see this. So we ran our packet sniffer. I gathered up all that data. And now I've just run a little thing that analyzed that data and prints it out for us. And the key thing that happens in this, this little conversation that happens between your phone and, a mobile, and the, the routers that we have is when your phone announces itself, it refers to itself with this number that you see. So you can see these little, each little blue box here is a different device in the room. We've captured around 104 of them, so that's probably a good portion of your mobile phones. Maybe a few people walking around in the streets and various other bits and pieces that are around the building here. Each one has announced itself with this little number, which is referred to as a MAC address. And all a MAC address is is a unique identifier for the hardware in your phone. Um, if you happen to have an iPhone, if you go into settings, general, and about, you'll find it's referred to as the Wi-Fi address. Right? There's this kind of slightly strange looking number. But the key thing is that's a unique number that refers to your phone. And any time you move to any different location, when your phone announces itself, it announces itself with that number. So if I were to run my packet sniffer again towards the end of the talk, I could have a look at this list, I could have a look at that list, and I'd be able to know who left uh, before the talk ended. I won't quite know your name. I won't know who you are. I'll just know this number. Right? But the key thing is that it's, it's constant. Anytime I can find that device, I'll see the same number every single time. 
The other things that we see there, so you can see little Samsung logos. If I scroll down the list, uh, there might be some iPhone, some Apple logos here somewhere. There's an Apple logo, another Samsung one. Um, the, the, the protocol that the, um, allocates these numbers, one of the things about it is that the, the manufacturer is baked into it. So I can see some of these people have Samsung phones, some have Apple phones, and I should have HTC phones in here somewhere if we look far enough. That's my phone there. Uh, so like I said, I knew my phone would be here. I know that this number is constant, so I put a little thing in the code to light my phone up in red, uh, so I can tell that I'm here as well. And that's, like I say, that's the MAC address that I always have for my phone. So that's the first thing that we can do. So that's kind of interesting. So just by running this little packet sniffer, I'm able to collect all this data that your devices are implicitly just broadcasting everywhere that you go. And I can use that to know that, I don't know who you are yet, but I know you're this device, and I know that device is here. And if I run the same thing anywhere else, I'll see the same numbers again. So that's quite interesting, and gives us one interesting data stream. There's an extra little kind of wrinkle that we've got in this. And if you look in these little boxes, some of them have reasonably long lists um, of, of words after them. So if I scroll up, you'll see there's a long one. There's another quite long one there. It's kind of interesting. And as we scroll up, we can see different bits and pieces. One of the slightly strange things about the, the, the protocol that manages these conversations is when your phones announce themselves, they also announce the networks that they frequently connect to. Right? So the phone is saying, hi, router. Can I connect to you? And it's also saying, are you any of these things that I usually connect to? And that's what that list is there. So we can see that person um, has been in IKEA, has been in the Vinci airports, uh, has been in Avoca. If we scroll down to me, I can see I've been in the Mercantile, I've been in UCD, uh, I've been in the Porterhouse, I've been in McDonald's, um, I've been in the RIA, and I've been in the Gibson Hotel. And again, this is just implicitly happening all the time, that that's my phone saying, these are networks that I've connected to recently. Are you any of these? And I can grab those conversations. So that's an extra layer of information that I'm able to capture just from those little implicit signals coming out from your phone. And there's an extra layer that we can lay on top of it. So there's a strange thing that computer scientists like me do. Well, I haven't done it, I'm going to admit. But it's called war driving. And what war driving is, it refers to, is people driving around with their laptops, looking out for Wi-Fi networks and recording the latitude and longitude of those Wi-Fi networks. Right? And people do this. If you see anyone, you see the glow of the laptop screen uh, coming out of a car late at night. This could be people doing this, this strange thing called war driving. And what they do, they collect up the locations of these different networks, and then they post them up to great big databases that store the locations of Wi-Fi networks all around the world. Right? So if anyone's interested in this, there's a service called Wiggle. Um, which is basically the big network of the locations of Wi-Fi addresses. And what I can do here is I can take all of the Wi-Fi addresses that we've seen referred to um, in these little conversations between your phones that are whizzing around uh, in the air around us, and I can look them up in the Weagle database and find out their locations. And that's what this map is showing us here. Um, we won't get all of them, but we get a reasonable set of different Wi-Fi networks scattered around Dublin. One thing that's quite interesting about those Wi-Fi networks is if you get your home broadband from somebody like UPC or Aircom or Vodafone, the default name that you get for that Wi-Fi network is something like UPC 178912 or something like that. That's a unique number. Nobody else has a UPC Wi-Fi network with that number on it. So the green dots that you see on the map 
are examples of UPC, Aircom, Vodafone networks. So there's a good chance that somebody's house has a green dot on it. So if I look at the map, there's a good chance that one of those green dots refers is kind of hovering over somebody in the room's house. And this just shows us an extra layer of information that I can capture about the people in the room or at least their devices that they're holding. I can look at myself. So this is the map I pulled out in this version of the map, just my uh, Wi-Fi networks that, that the, the, uh, my phone is announcing. And you can see interesting stuff. So if I look at these, I can see I've been to UCD. If we scroll over here, I went to the Eurocycle shop in Newbridge. And my favorite one, I took a car ferry and connected to internet at sea. Uh, I think that's brilliant that that one happened. But that's the kind of thing that we can do. So again, just through no action by yourself, no activity by yourself, we can generate this really interesting picture of who all the people in the room are. So I'm going to jump back to the slides, and I'm going to be happy that that worked. And that's all interesting, right? So we can collect all this data. Um, we can collect it ourselves through our devices, or other devices around us can collect it. What's interesting about data is if you can do something with it, right? So there's no point in collecting data if nothing ever happens with it. So data becomes alive and becomes interesting when we can look at it and find out interesting insights from that data. So we talked this about this idea of following these digital footprints, right? So we're leaving digital footprints dotted around the place. Using exactly the technique that we just did there, People use that to kind of track a few digital footprints. So this was a story that was in the news recently about Dublin Airport and how Dublin Airport are using exactly this technique to track people moving around the airport. All right, so again, if you go into the airport, you go to the check-in desk, your phone will be near a router there. It will announce its unique number. When you go down to security, it'll be a different router. Your phone will announce its unique number there. And as you move through the airport, because that number is always tied to your phone, what the airport authority can do is track the movement that this person has had throughout the airport. And they can see things like how long the person stayed at check-in, how long it took them to get from check-in through security, did they hang around the shops, or did they go straight to their boarding gate. That tells them interesting things about how they should run their airport. Right? So they use this data to look at um, how efficiently things like security and check-in are running. But it also gives them some interesting clues to what people are doing and what kinds of people there are. So they can look at that and find those people who are very time efficient and arrive at the airport, check in, security, plane, and those people who are very careful, arrive two hours early, check in, security, wander up and down through the shops, have a cup of tea, have a bit of cake, and then slowly manage to get to their gate eventually. So they can look at these little digital footprints and find out interesting insights about those people. And the story that I had the clip from there was kind of an interesting question that was being asked about, is this okay? So we put up the little sign um, at the door there to say, you know, we're going to collect this data from your phones, and if you don't want to be involved, here's what you need to do. The story around Dublin Airport was they don't have signs up, and is this okay or not? All right, so it's kind of it's a very interesting question. We might come back to it towards the end. That's one example of the little digital footprints that we leave around the place and how we can follow them. Another example um, that's quite a simple way to use data comes from when we move around the internet. Right, so rather than physically moving around and our phones announcing themselves, moving through various pages when we look at things online. And there's this idea called cookie pools, um, which refers to little pieces that are left on your computer when you visit web pages. So you've probably all seen these now. You get a little warning when you visit a web page saying, this web page uses cookies. 
is that okay? And most of us just press okay, and that's fine. And what's happening there is that web page is leaving a little file, a little marker on your computer um, to remember that you've been there. And what cookie pools do is lots of different web pages can share those little files. So if you go and visit the Irish Times website, for example, they might leave a cookie there. And if they're involved in a cookie pool with Amazon, when you go and visit Amazon later on, Amazon will be able to find out, oh, you visited the Irish Times. That's interesting. And they might be able to do something with that. And one of the kind of simple things that they do with that um, is through services like Amazon, when you look at products, they record those products. So here's an example. So here's me uh, looking at a web page to look at these sunglasses. And then what I might find a little strange is as I look at other web pages online, Amazon keeps selling me these sunglasses. Right? So there's an ad for them on wired.com. Or sorry, here's an ad for on wired.com. The other one's a different website. There's the same ad again. And there's a different article with the same ad again. And the way that's happening is, again, through the use of cookie pools, where Amazon are storing a little cookie to say, ooh, here's this person. He was on the website. He's interested in these sunglasses. And then when I visit different websites, they look at the same little file and say, oh, this is the same person again. Let's try and advertise the sunglasses to him. Uh, we might push him over the edge and finally make him buy them. And it's another really simple example of using these digital footprints to do something interesting. So in this case, to advertise products to me that I might be interested in. But both of those are kind of, they're fairly blunt and fairly simple examples of how we might use the data trails uh, that we leave around behind us. Where this becomes really interesting is when we start to look for patterns. Uh, so I really like this picture. So at first, this might look like just kind of a random collection of black blobs and a white background. But if you look at it for a minute and kind of squint your eyes and blur your focus, eventually you might see a picture in there. Somebody sees us shout it out. But the dog. Yeah, so if you look at it for a few minutes, you'll see there's a Dalmatian. Most of us see a Dalmatian there. Um, kind of towards the middle, uh, his head, and he kind of pointing his head at the ground. We're really good at this. Right? So this kind of visual pattern matching, we're really, really good at, and we can do it very, very easily. Um, so it's, it's incredible that we do that. And anyone who works in, say, computer vision, for example, uh, this kind of thing is impossible to make computers do, uh, or really, really hard at least. But what computers are really good at is if we have great big data sets, so here's a great big data set uh, that we're not meant to be able to read. We're very bad at finding patterns in great big data sets like this. So this is a data set with lots of rows, lots of columns. It's very difficult for us to find interesting patterns within those if we sit down and read them. But computers are really good at it. Uh, so this is my uh, not very subtle mention of a book that myself and my colleagues, John and Aoife, wrote recently, which was all about doing this job. Right? So we talk about the idea of machine learning. What machine learning is all about is finding patterns in data sets. And computers are brilliant at it. Right? Computers are really, really good, and they're getting better and better. Machine learning is a really interesting growing field that's taken a big resurgence over the last few years. And if we can find those patterns, we can do lots more interesting stuff than maybe the slightly blunt examples of advertising the thing you were just looking at. Um, or tracking as how you're moving around the airport. So the things that we can do are we can recognize things like your demographics, interests, and preferences. Or, very interesting, we can predict what you'll do next. And I just want to give you a few examples of the two of those. Uh, we'll start off with this idea of recognizing your demographics, interests, and preferences. Here's a very simple example. Uh, this goes back to the location data that's captured that I mentioned before. So your phone, as you say, as you move around, is constantly gathering up these little breadcrumbs. And you can actually access these if you want yourself. 
So there's a nice service called Open Paths, um, and you can download an app, and Open Paths will run in the background all the time on your phone and drop these little breadcrumbs. Now, people like, say, I suppose Apple, um, if you use an iPhone, and if you turn on various services, they have access to this kind of data. Your mobile phone service provider has access to similar data. It's nice through something like Open Paths, you can get access to that data as well. And I've had Open Paths running on my phone for, I've had it for years, um, and that's a little screenshot. If I go to the Open Paths website, I can have a look at a map and look at where I've been. Right? So that shows me the last six months or a year worth of little data dots dropped around the place. And you can see I'm mostly in Dublin. I went to Cork at some stage, I went to Galway, I went to Surf uh, up in Donegal, and at some point I went to Belfast as well. And it's kind of interesting for me to look at that. Like, I don't remember I went there. But what's more interesting is automated services can look at this kind of data and again look for patterns. Right? So what's the interesting pattern that we can find in this? So this is a zoomed in version of that same data set. Um, and what we've done here is colored the dots by yellow for daytime dots and black for nighttime dots. Now this is the version of this data set that I have access to, but through my phone, Apple, um, or at least the, the iOS running on my phone has access to a very, very similar data set. And the interesting pattern that they can look at from this is say, well, all those nighttime dots are clustered around the same spot. And if I were to play a little animation, the daytime dots tend to go here in the morning and then back in the afternoon, in the evening, mostly evening. Um, and the interesting thing that they can find with that is it's very easy to find the pattern there to say, well, that one must be home and that one must be work. Right? So very simple patterns, but by analyzing the data, those patterns emerge and those patterns are nice and reliable. And going back to what I said before about data becoming alive and becoming interesting, when we start to do interesting things with it and make a difference to people and allow people to take advantage of that data, there's a nice example here of, well, given that my phone sitting there, at least the, the operating system running on my phone knows this now, right? I haven't ever told it, this is where I live and this is where I work, but by looking at my, the pattern in my data of, well, every morning you get up from here and you go to here, what could they do with that data to make my life easier and to make my life better? Well, the phone does very simple things. So the iPhone does this and Android phones, different phone manufacturers do something very, very similar. Hopefully you can just about see that. Um, what it does is if ever you go to the home screen, the you know, home screen will give you little prompts about how long it might take you to go somewhere. So every morning, if I'm sitting down having my cornflakes and I look at my phone, my phone tells me right now it'll take you about 45, 47 minutes to drive to Stillorgan. Traffic is unusually bad today. And that's a nice little bit of insight that I can get from, my from the data. Um, there's a couple of interesting things around data happening there. So one, they've looked in the pattern to find where I live and what, where I work. And second, they're, they're using a data stream about traffic um, to work out how long it might take me for to get from home to work. And they're helping me to make an interesting decision. So I'm sitting there, I can say, well, will I have another cup of tea? Or do I need to get up and run and get the bus and go to work? Uh, and it's a simple, simple example of how from that interesting data stream, looking out for patterns, you can find these interesting, maybe slightly higher level bits of information about me. Now where I work and where I live, I guess is slightly mundane. Uh, I wanna show you one other example that's based on movement data, um, but shows maybe the, the range of things that you can do with this sort of data. So there's a really interesting data set that all the kind of data scientists uh, got very excited about last year that was released in New York. So it was a data set showing all of the taxi journeys in New York over it was like six months to a year, and there were 1.1 billion taxi trips. Right? So this is a massive data set, and everyone got really excited, and said, well, what can I do with this? Um, and one of the interesting things was just this, this nice visualization. 
So this is showing New York, and the more lit up pieces are where there were lots of taxi journeys, the more dull pieces are where there were less taxi journeys. And that's maybe a little bit interesting in its own right. But one person, so this guy Todd Schneider, did an interesting analysis to try and stretch how much information you could get out of data like this. And one of the things he did was draw this graph. And what this graph shows is across the top, we've got time of day. And time of day goes from midnight to midnight, essentially. So morning to evening from left to right. And then down the bottom, we've got different times of year. Right? So starting in January, going all the way to December. And then the different little yellow dots that cover this show a taxi journey. Right? So show a taxi driver picking up a fare and bringing them to somewhere. And the first thing that you can see in this is a kind of obvious pattern that you'd expect. So the black band towards the left-hand side of the image is nighttime. Um, so that's around kind of 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock. Um, and there aren't many taxi journeys. Right? That's not very interesting. That's what you'd expect. But it's always nice to see that kind of stuff in data, because now you go, great, this is doing what I think it should be doing. Right? There might be interesting things in here. So that kind of shows an average of all the taxi drivers in the data set. And you get this sort of average behavior that we see. So most taxi drivers start work around 6 or 7, work up till around maybe 4 or 5 o'clock, when either they maybe take a break or things get really busy and it's hard to get more fares. And then a lot of them kind of work through the night. But what somebody did was to say, well, you know, what interesting thing could I find in here? And one of the interesting things that they were able to find was, could you determine whether people are Muslims or not? Right? That's kind of an, an odd thing to go and fi find inside a taxi journey data set. But maybe there's a little signal inside this data set that would allow me to determine that. And so this is what the person did. So the blue lines show the times when a Muslim is due to pray during the day. And that changes around the year because it moves with sunrise and sunset. So that's why the blue lines kind of curve along like that. And using that kind of template of the times of day when someone is meant to pray, they look through the data set and say, well, can I find taxi drivers that match this pattern? Right, so you've got this interesting pattern. Can we go and find people in the data set that match this pattern? And this is one example of a taxi driver that matches this pattern really well. Right, so we can see the times that the person starts curving along nicely with the, the blue line on the left, the break in the middle of the day curving along, and then the break at the end of the day curving along. So it's probably not a 100% reliable signal, but it's an interesting signal that's in the data set that someone was able to find lots of people that matched, and that maybe you could start to do something interesting with it. But it's also a good example of how kind of simple mundane data sets can be used to tell quite interesting things about ourselves. One last example along these lines comes from the devices that more and more of us have in our homes now. Um, we mentioned the Internet of Things. One of the things that, that always kind of falls under that category is the fact that we can, we can instrument our houses and we can maybe control things from our mobile phones. So the device on the top left is a climote. Uh, that's a nice little device and you can control your heating from your phone. Um, but it records a data stream about when your heating is on and when it isn't. The one on the right is, is called the Nest and it does a similar job. And again, there's lots of different devices that we can put inside our homes that give us this data stream that tells us about the, how that home gets used. This is a nice piece of work that Duff, or, yeah, Aidan Duffy in DIT and some colleagues did a little while ago. And what they did was they got access to a really interesting data set that showed energy use for a big collection of people's homes. And then they actually had demographic descriptors of those people. Right? So who were the people who lived in those houses? And looking at the energy patterns, they broke them down into these 10 groups. 
And these are t 10 groups of people that display kind of very different energy behavior. And what they were able to do then was to say, well, who are the people in each of these groups and map demographic descriptors to those groups. And I'll just show you a couple of examples. So here's the first one. And you can see with this, this is showing energy use. And we see, again, time is going from left to right. We'll be across the bottom. And then energy use goes from top to bottom. And we see here a household where not much energy is used. And then there's a big peak in the evening. When they looked into the demographic data quite reliably, these turned out to be young people living alone. Right? These people out at work all day, and then they come home, and they use all their energy in the evening. So maybe they cook, they watch TV, they do whatever it is um, that they're doing at home. And that spike and that pattern is a very reliable identifier of that sort of household. Another one looked like this. So you can see the spikes aren't quite so big here. Uh, but as we go along, there's kind of a spike in the morning, spike at lunchtime, spike in the evening, but fairly sort of constant energy use throughout the day. And when they looked at the data, the demographics associated with these people, they found this was primarily older people living alone. Right? So they're in the house, they're using energy throughout the day, and the spikes don't go up and down too much. And then here's the last set. Uh, we can see energy use is quite high in this case. A big peak in the morning, sustained use throughout the day, and then a big peak in the evening as well. And when they looked at the demographic data here, it turns out these are families with children. And the interesting thing that they can do with this is now they've identified these patterns, other houses, where they know nothing about who lives in those houses, they can look at what their energy use pattern looks like and map it back to these different categories. Right? So the energy company, for example, can look at a house's energy use, see, oh, look, a little spike in the morning, sustained use throughout the day, big spike in the evening, this must be a family with children. Or it's very likely to be, there's a good signal that this is likely to be a family with children. So that's, again, that idea, that kind of higher level insight that you get from the data that tells you interesting things about, in this case, the people who live in a house. And like we said before, these insights and this data becomes interesting if we can do something with them. So we've done a little bit of work on a project that we called Nudge Along that I did with colleagues in DIT and UCD in the Cedar Center. And the idea here was to look at how you could use this sort of data to decide how you could communicate with people to make them behave differently. So this is a very popular idea now, the idea of the nudge. Um, various governments have departments or referred to as their nudge departments. And the idea is if you can make little suggestions that are very targeted at people, you can change the way they behave. In the energy scenario, what we might be interested in is making people use less energy. So let's say energy saving, that's a good thing. We might want to make people use less energy. And if we could categorize people like this, we could think about how best could we nudge the people in these different categories to use less energy. We might say young people living alone. Well, one thing that's found to work well with young people is gamification and competition. So different energy companies do this. So they'll send you out your energy bill and they'll say, here's how you compare to your neighbors. And that's what the little bars are showing here. So we can say U is the gray bar in the middle. Green is your most efficient neighbors. Yellow is the rest of the neighbors. And what we can see here is we're doing OK. Right? We're not saving the most energy out of everybody, uh, but we're doing better than some people. But maybe we could do better. Right? And it turns out young people tend to be susceptible to that kind of competition. Right? I'm going to try and beat that. I'm going to try and get that bar down. I want to be in the best group. Older people living alone, well, maybe we could give them a money-saving sort of a message. You might say, save energy, save money. Right? That might work well. Uh, they might be more responsive to that. And then families with children, we might say, save energy, save the planet. Right? You might be interested in what they do. Nice pictures of polar bears. Now, that's a bit facetious and a bit over, um, oversimplified. But that kind of thing is used all the time and does work. So that idea of picking messages to target them at particular groups does work in this idea of the nudge, and messages are more likely to make people nudge 
um, in different groups than they are in others. And the key to using data to do it is to use that data to categorize or classify the groups that somebody belongs to. And that's a very simple example um, of how we might do this. So one last example kind of in this category of extracting descriptors about people that I want to show you uh, relates to Twitter. And there was a nice little website that uh, one of our students, Ivan, very kindly made uh, that we collect through which I collected Twitter handles from people before the talk today. And Twitter is kind of interesting. It's hard to imagine a world when Twitter didn't exist, um, but it's not that long ago. But there's a huge amount of content generated on Twitter every day. The election was brilliant um, over the weekend for Twitter. Twitter exploded during the election. But one of the interesting things about Twitter is when you sign up for a Twitter account, this is the sign-up screen for Twitter, you give them very little information. Right? They get a very narrow picture of you. So all you have to provide is your name, your phone number, your email address, and then you set a password. So basically, from the point where you start in Twitter, all Twitter know is your name and your phone number or email address. Right? They don't really know anything about you. And the way Twitter make money is Twitter sell ads. And the way they make money selling ads is they sell you, basically. So Twitter and Google, and these companies are interesting because we sometimes talk about, oh, they're selling our data. Twitter aren't interested in selling your data. Twitter are interested in selling your attention. Right? They don't want to give their data um, about you to anyone because that'll lose their advantage. What they want to be able to do is to sell advertisers your attention and do that in a very targeted way. So when an advertiser says, I want this kind of person, Twitter want to be able to say, oh, I've got hundreds of them. Right, roll up, um, and I can line them up in front of you. And if you ever try and run some Twitter ads, so this is a screenshot of setting up a Twitter ad campaign, um, the things that you can do so I can start my campaign, I can choose the kind of people that I want. So if I blow this up, you can see halfway down, I get to choose what gender do I want my ads put in front of. Right? Do I want these put in front of men or do I want them put in front of women? If I go down further, I can say what interests am I interested uh, in getting people who are interested in. We've said interested way too many times there. Um, but you can see there's a list of interests that Twitter has. And again, I can target my ads at people who are maybe interested in cars, maybe interested in education, maybe interested in gaming. And the interesting thing about this is that you don't tell Twitter any of this. Right? So you don't fill out a big form to say, oh, I'm interested in this, and I'm interested in that, and I'm interested in that. Twitter need to infer this data about you um, from the activities that take place on Twitter. And if we look at the activities that take place on Twitter, so what do Twitter know about us? Well, they know our names. They know the handle, I guess. Maybe they have a little bio there that I give. We also see all the tweets uh, that I generate. So that's a lot of content that Twitter have to analyze. And then we mentioned metadata before. There's metadata associated with those. So what time of day am I tweeting? How often do I do it? Um, or do they tend to be retweets or conversations? Or what sort of usage do I have? They have the timeline. So all the people that I follow on Twitter, here's all the content from them that I might consume. And then they have those followers themselves. So these are the, the people who follow me in this case. And these are the people that I'm following. And that's kind of interesting. We can think about that as a big graph or a network of connections between people. And this is the data that essentially Twitter have to work with in order to be able to categorize the type of person that I am so that they can sell me to advertisers. Um, because again, that's what they want to do. They want to be able to sell my attention in a targeted way. So what we want to do is just give a little demonstration of the kind of ways that Twitter might do this. So these are the people that entered their Twitter um, handles for the, the demonstration this evening. Uh, there were a couple of people who entered their Twitter handles whose Twitter feeds were blocked, so I wasn't able to connect to those. But these are the people we had to work with. Uh, and what I want to do, relatively simple classification. So can we classify 
the gender of those people and their interests, just from the data that's publicly available on Twitter. Now, if we were working within Twitter, we'd have a much richer um, data set, but Twitter's kind of interesting that anyone can harvest an awful lot of data from Twitter. Twitter make an API available, and it's very straightforward um, to, to harvest data from that about people. And this is what we've done in this case. So if we start out with gender, this was all the data that we had from Twitter. The things that are probably likely to be useful are maybe your tweets, right? So maybe we could infer gender from the way you talk or the things that you talk about. It turns out, though, I spent a bit of time trying to do this, and I had great ideas for how I might do it with that. Your name, and we should always find the easy ways uh, whenever they're there. So it turns out your name is great for finding your gender. It's kind of silly, but it works, right? And we can do it. And we're looking at about 90%. There's some kind of studies of this. About 90% of people give their full real name um, on Twitter. So it's relatively reliable. And what you can do with your name is you can take first names. First names are the, the thing for this. And from places like the CSO, there's nice data sets. So you get the, the baby names data set. There's nice data sets that are gendered. So we can get the popular male names, the popular female names from a particular country. And from those, we can work out the probability that someone is male or female based on their name. Uh, we can do that in a country-specific way. Um, country is important here. And again, Twitter can infer your country if they have location data available to them. Right? They can see, uh, whenever you connect to a website, it's relatively easy to see where you are uh, when you do that. So they can infer that. So we can do the same thing. So we can take people's first names, um, and we can use a, a lookup into those first names and look at the probabilities of those first names. But if we look at our people here, and you can see your own name fly around if you got involved in this, these are the people we think are male, and these are the people we think are female. And then the two in the middle, we don't know. So it hasn't done bad. The one in the middle seems really obvious. Right? We should be able to do that. But we can't do it because that person hasn't written in their full name inside the box in Twitter. Right? So their Twitter handle is Claire O'Connell, stuck in kind of one, one block of text altogether and they haven't written that out as a first name and a second name. Now, if we spend a bit more time, we could have a go at it. Uh, we could probably pull that apart. That's a surprisingly tricky thing to do. And uh, names are messy and names are hard. And if you look at the Twitter names that other people used, trying to find first names in those Twitter handles isn't going to be terribly reliable. All right, so that broke us. And the other one, uh, Tashi, Tashi's first name is Tashi. And nobody in the world, nobody else in the world is called Tashi. Uh, so we had no data to base that on. What we can do, though, is we can look at those people's tweets and see from the text that we've got, can we try and classify their gender? And we can do, you can do that. It's not as reliable um, because the signals in there are very weak. And when we do that, Claire also becomes male in this case, and Tashi becomes male. Um, my sense, and we'll come back and talk about this later on, so I went digging into these to try and find out why it was getting this wrong. So Claire, and hopefully Claire is here. Um, writes a lot about education and technology, and possibly the bias built into the classifier thinks maybe that refers to a male. So that's kind of interesting. It shows this kind of worked, but even something as simple as that is relatively tricky to do, but we did okay. The second thing we want to do is try and classify people in terms of their interests. And if we look at all the data that we have available from Twitter, well, the things that are likely to be useful here are your tweets, so the things that you're talking about, the timeline in terms of the things that you're following, um, and then the people that you're following. So this actually gives a really rich picture um, on Twitter in terms of the sorts of things that you're interested in. So the way that we build a classifier to do this, or a, a way we find the patterns in this, is for every person, 
we gather up all of their tweets, um, or typically with Twitter, you can get about the last hundred or so. The tweets in their timeline, so the things that they're reading at the moment, and then the descriptions of the people that they're following. So that little bio line um, that's available for, again, it's about 80 to 90% of people fill that out and give us a bit of data there. Each piece of text that we've got there, we can use a technique um, called topic classification. We train up a model on data that we know the topic of. So for example, I might go to the Irish Times, grab a load of business articles, grab a load of sports articles, and then train up my model to recognize this is text about sport, this is text about uh, business, and so on through a range of categories. Now you've got to be, be a bit careful about how you do that because Twitter is messy and Twitter is hard, very short. Uh, the fact that Twitter texts are so short make this job a little bit tricky. Uh, in the model that I'm using here, for people who are interested in this, we use a technique called text expansion, where we take the tweet by itself, put it through a search engine like Google, and grab some text from the pages that come back. Because I want to build that out. Right? 140 characters doesn't give me enough signal. So I see, can I build that out to more and more categories? Or sorry, more and more characters. But that's a little detail about it. The overall thing that we do is we take each little piece of text that I've got, and then I classify that into a topic. And then by looking at the topics that are frequent for a person, I can say, this is what this person must be interested in. So if you keep tweeting about sport, you must be interested in sport. If you keep tweeting about technology, you must be interested in technology. And so what we've done is we've taken all the people again, and we've run them through this data set. And I've just got a couple of examples here. So here's Data Damsel. And according to her, the, the data that I've gathered from her and put through the classifier, she's very interested in computers and the internet, a little bit about the environment, a little bit about tra travel. Here's another example. So MACG Energy. Uh, and MACG Energy is interested in the environment and a few other bits and pieces as well. But by classifying all that content, we can build this picture of what this person is interested in. And then what I've done on the next page is basically just taken the biggest interest for the 20 people who supplied their, their Twitter handles, and we can see where they land. So if I look at this, we see computing. And that's not surprising, given the audience and the topic that we're talking about today. So you've got a lot of people whose primary interest, according to their Twitter data, is computing. A few people are interested in education few in games, and then the environment, beauty and style, and arts and society. So that's exactly the same thing that Twitter does. Right? They, do, they might do it in slightly different ways. They maybe have more data to do it. But they do exactly the same thing in order to classify your interests, um, your, your personality, so that they can, like I say, sell you in a targeted way to advertisers. And so what we might do if I was generating some ads on Twitter, well, I might be interested in women who are interested in computing. And we can look at our data set and say, well, who are those people? And a few fall down. Or I might be interested in uh, men who are interested in education. And we look at our data set, and a few of all those fall down, except for my mistake uh, that we're making here. But I, I suppose I left the mistake in, because I want to show this isn't 100% reliable. So we're dealing with weak signals inside the data. And we're trying to assemble together as many weak signals as we can into a strong signal. Right? So there's never kind of one killer thing in these big, interesting data sets that gives us the answer. There's lots of little bits and pieces that we assemble together. And people use exactly this kind of data to do things like classify political affiliation, age, interests, personality, and gender, and other things as well, so that in the case of Twitter, they can sell you things in a more efficient and targeted way. I want to go through one more example just about taking the same approach to predicting what you might do next. So if you want to get a full picture of you, well, what are the ways we can use data to get a picture of you? Well, we can classify those things like demographics and interests, 
The other thing, if we could predict what you're about to do next, then we might say we know you really well. And the example I want to show you is just this idea of customer churn. Um, lots of companies do this. So if you have your phone with, with, with three, for example, three are worried that you might move uh, to another provider like Vodafone. And they're constantly looking at your behavior and trying to say, are you about to do that? Because if they can recognize that you're about to do that, they can ring you up and offer you a free iPhone or something like that, and you might change your mind. And loads of companies do this. The, the mobile phone is just one example. And the way they do that is they gather up a load of historical data about customers. So here's a little group of customers and some historical data about them going in 2012 and 2013. They pick a point in time and they say who wasn't around three months later. Right? So who left after this happened? So you can see the blue people are the people who stayed. The orange people are the people who left. And now I have a big data set. Right, so I've got this group of people who stayed. I've got this group of people who left. I turn that into data. And what we might do is measure, well, what was their age? What was their job? What kind of phone did they use? What kind of minutes were they using on their phone? How much did they use data versus calls? And loads of other stuff uh, that we, we can collect about. The mobile phone companies have a big advantage here. They've got loads of data um, at their disposal to do this. So they build up this representation of a person. They know whether that person ultimately churned or didn't churn. And so they use a machine learning algorithm to say, well, can we find the pattern inside this data that tells us someone is about to go? Because that's what they're interested in. And that's what we refer to as a prediction model or a predictive model. There's loads of different techniques for doing this. One of the common ones uses a thing called a decision tree. That shows an example of a decision tree. And in that, the circles are bits of data that we're looking at, the gray boxes are a recognition that someone is about to turn, and the white boxes are a recognition that someone is going to stay. If I zoom in just to a little bit of that, we can see, for example, if someone is using minutes way above what they pay for uh, in their tariff, they're likely to go. Or if someone has a very old handset, they might be likely to go. And the key thing about a decision tree like this is lots of little combinations. So going back to that idea of weak signals, it's lots of little signals that we get in these different pieces of data that I can gather that ultimately get me to this answer about whether someone is going to turn or not. So what can I do with this? Well, I can take my current data. So if we worked in three, we could take this data today, so this is the end of February. I can gather up all my information about my customers and say, well, what have you been up to over the last few months? And then I can run those customers through my model, and it will tell me this person is about to leave, this person is going to stay, and so on from that. And again, we think about the point of doing this is what can I do about that data? Well, from the point of view of being three, I can ring up those customers who look like they're at risk and try and convince them to stay um, in some way or other. That's a simple thing. There's lots of other things that they can do. And I want to show you one more example here that just shows the ubiquity of the ways I suppose that this can be applied. So this, there's a, a really nice, people like TED Talks, there's a really nice TED Talk about this topic and using predictive models in the law. And in particular, using predictive models to determine whether someone should be allowed out on bail or not. Right, so there's a big problem um, in, I guess, courts all around the world that maybe the wrong people get let out on bail and the wrong people end up in jail. And what you'd like to do is make that decision in a better way. Um, and there's an attorney general in the States who ran a big project um, a couple of years ago to do exactly this. And what I want to show you is just how it's exactly the same technique. So if we want to do this, we gather up a big set of data about, in this case, prisoners. The black dot now represents the, the bail decision. All right, so was the person, and these are people who were released out on bail. And what I look in this historical data is say, well, who re-offended, and for want of a better word, who behaved themselves? 
Um, so we can see this historical data. If I gather this up, now I have examples of people who re-offended when they were released out on bail and people who didn't. And all that kind of time before the black dot, that's time when I can gather data about what that person looked like. So I can apply exactly the same machine learning techniques to this data set to find what's the pattern that tells me that someone is likely to re-offend if they get released on bail. And I can use that information to help me make a better decision. And judges across various courts in the US use exactly this system. So this is the form that they fill in. Uh, so they fill in the details of the defendant, the offense type, whether they were, what age they were, did they have pending charges, what kind of prior charges they had, and have they ever failed to appear for a bail hearing. So the details of a particular offendant are submitted into a form like this, and it produces a, a, a display or a screen that looks like this. So the judge literally has this at his desk on a screen in front of him. And you can see what it says is, what's the, the likelihood of this person to commit another criminal activity while they're on bail? And is this likely to be a violent activity? And you can see for this poor offendant, we're saying that the likelihood is very, very high that this person would re-offend, and it's very likely that that would be a violent crime. And the idea is that the judge would use this information in making the decision to say, well, this person shouldn't be released, uh, in this case, out on bail. And I like this example because it just shows how exactly the same techniques can be used across lots and lots of different scenarios. And one of the things that it also illustrates is that it can be the same techniques can be used across lots of different kinds of decisions. So those kind of churn decisions, so whether three are going to ring you up with an offer or not, they're kind of very low risk. Um, it doesn't really matter if they get the, too many of those wrong. So if they get those decisions wrong, well, maybe you leave and three will lose a customer, and that's bad for three. Um, they wouldn't like it, but it doesn't really change that much. And maybe if they get it wrong the other way, you'll get a phone call when you don't really want a phone call. Uh, but the, the stakes are very low in that case. But we are seeing more and more of the same techniques being used in more and more scenarios where the stakes are a little bit higher. So there's lots of health applications and then applications like this that make us stop and think maybe a little bit more. And it's drifting out into all kinds of things. So we have this idea of data-driven everything now. Um, so in education, in sports, in health, in farming, in HR, all these different things have the application of exactly these techniques. So using patterns in data to find kind of higher level information about people and using patterns in data to predict what people might do next. Uh, the education one is an interesting one. Um, so out in DCU, there's people doing great work uh, on looking at students and predicting the likelihood of first year students to fail in college or to succeed in college and then intervening in those. And it's a really nice application of exactly the same thing. Um, and like I say, across all these different areas, we see this happen all the time. One thing, particularly in a, a room like this, it's always interesting to stop and say, well, actually, is there anything new in all of this? Right? We get very excited um, about new techniques, and we talk about them as being new. And you might stop and look around and say, well, actually, people have been collecting data for a long time. People have been trying to make predictions and decisions based on data for a long time. This is a nice one. So as far as I understand, this is the first example of actuarial science, is Edmund Halley's life table from 1693. And it was the first time actuaries spend time looking at data and trying to predict outcomes. Right, and we've got this table about likely life expectancies uh, that people might have. And then the decision they were making was what premiums should those people be paying uh, for life assurance or similar things. And that's a nice example. So 1693, that's a long time ago. Uh, we've been doing this kind of thing all the time since then. So it does beg the question, you know, what's new about what we're doing now compared to what people have been doing for the last, what's that, three or 400 years? And I think, this is for me at least, that the difference is 
the breadth of areas that we can record data about ourselves. All right, so going back to that example that we had at the very beginning, we've got all these different data streams coming in that tell us about parts of our lives that we never had data about before. So the idea of having data about, I don't know, my baby's temperature coming from the soother in its mouth, that's a bizarre and new idea uh, that was never available to us before. And those kind of things spread across all the bits and pieces of data that we can collect that are shown up on the screen. And the second thing I think that's interesting, because of that amount of data that we've got and the way that we can process it, the sorts of predictions um, and classifications that we can make about people are much more individualized and personalized than they were before. So in those old kind of actuarial tables, well, you might be a man between the age of 60 and 70, and that was you in terms of classifying you and making a prediction of what might happen next. Whereas now we can say, and people like insurance companies are doing this, you're a man, you live here, you drive this kind of car, you walk to work, you walk at this speed, your average heart rate over the last six months is this, and on and on and on and on. So they've got this very rich picture that they can use to make a very personalized prediction or classification for you. And based on that, I think it's fair to say that they do, based on that data, really know, like I say, who you are. I show this just as one kind of counterexample to watch out for, that this isn't perfect, right? And we saw it in some of our examples, or the examples that I had here, that we were making some mistakes. And there's lots of mistakes in this, and this is one that I always get, and I always like, so LinkedIn, send recommendations of groups that you should join all the time. And they do it in a data-driven way, and they make predictions about, based on what they know about me, what sort of groups should I be interested in. And they always, about once every two or three months, ask me to join women in machine learning. Um, and I'm not going to join women in machine learning, but it's a nice example of how this data-driven approach doesn't work. So we all look at this in the same way that we all looked at Claire O'Connell and said, you know, we know exactly what that is. But the algorithm that's running can't pick up on a, a, a kind of key fact here. So the way that LinkedIn do this is they look at me, they look at the people who are in this group, and they try and decide, well, how similar am I to all those people? And in terms of people interested in machine learning and data mining, according to most of the things that they look at, I look just like all the people who are in this group. But what the algorithm doesn't know is really doesn't know the word, the meaning of this word women um, at the start of the sentence. It doesn't know that that's an important characteristic for the people in this group. That's just one of the weak signals. The algorithm will look and say, well, all these people are women. You don't match on that one, but you match on all these other things. Right? So the same kind of degrees, the same kind of job, same kind of interests. So we'll throw you into that bucket because the, the overall sum of the signals is saying you belong here. Um, and, and that's kind of a nice example of the key things that these algorithmic approaches miss um, is that in this case, one little signal is much more important than the others. So that's kind of a last example to leave us on. So thanks very much for your attention. The last thing I'll just mention is a couple of things you can do if, if you're kind of interested in this. One thing that you can do now is all these services like Facebook and Google and Twitter all make your data available to you. So you can get, jump in there and download your data. And it's kind of fun to play with and to look at. The Google one is really nice. If you go to Google and you kind of poke around inside your profile, you'll find the link to view my data. And you can look at your search history um, over however long you've been using Google. That's kind of a fun thing just as yourself to have a look at some surprising things pop out of it. But all the other um, services pretty much make your data available to you. Uh, the Cedar Center and the Insight Center, as Rick mentioned, they're doing great work um, on data, all things data-driven. Um, and then if someone gets really excited about predictive analytics, we have a course coming up on it uh, someday soon. So I'll leave it then. Thanks very much for your attention and for the interaction. Sit down there. Sit.
first of all, I'd just like on all your behalf to thank Brian for such a fascinating talk. Really, really, really very interesting. And so much of what he described really wasn't there within what, 10, 15 years ago. So this is an amazing change in, in technology and in social behavior. So Brian is uh, happy to take a few questions. We have some microphones going around. So I'd ask you to uh, use them and maybe give your affiliation if you're asking a, a question. I think, I think you've scared them all. <laughs> oh, we've got one. One at the back there, and then I'll come to you. So it's one at the back, the very back there. Hi, thank you very much. I'm Rami Avatar from, well, previously I was working from uh, in DCU, and now I'm working in Haystacks and analytics of mobile data as well. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Um, and thank you for the example of the prison and analytics of prisoners' data. It's kind of make me make the analogy between the authority of the prison and the corporates now. Uh, uh, what's your opinion of the future of that? Is, is it not the right time now to make a new deal about data? Like the analytics of the collective data is very interesting and make a lot of uh, uh, positive impacts in many ways of life, but the personal data, when to look to personal data, it might go to some ways that we do not want. I can have, I can give many examples where looking to my personal data can make uh, some threat on my life or freedom. And obviously what, what Google might have now in the future can lead to this, to this as well. So uh, I would like to hear your opinion about all personal data ownership and privacy. Yeah, no, so I think that's a really interesting question. I suppose I'll start my answer by saying I suppose I fall into the bucket of people really interested in what can we do with the data and maybe don't stop and think too much about whether we should be doing it or not. Uh, so I spend most of the time thinking, well, what could you do and what could we do? But we do stop and think, I suppose, about whether it's okay to do these things or not. And I think the key thing is, so that I think the collection of data in itself, that's not a bad thing. Uh, looking for insights and in data isn't a bad thing. It's what we do with those insights. Um, that's where things get interesting. I think when you see, well, what's the use that people make? And there's a, a great story that um, actually Aoife, who we wrote the book with, uh, gives that I think really captures this quite nicely. So if you forget about kind of digital data and step back from that, if you have a local restaurant and you go down every week to that local restaurant uh, to have your dinner um, on a Friday night, and the waiter in there gets to know you and gets to know what you like, when you arrive into that restaurant one day and he says, oh, hi, Brian, uh, I got in this really great bottle um, of Merlot that you're really going to like. Um, I've, I've put one aside for you. And you say, great, that's brilliant. Right? That's him getting to know you and getting used to your preferences. And you're, you'd generally be really happy with that. If, on the other hand, though, you went down to your bank, um, and when you were sitting down with your bank manager, your bank manager said, well, you know, Billy the waiter was over here telling us that you're in the restaurant there three or four times a week drinking the whole time. Uh, you wouldn't like that. Right? So you wouldn't like the idea that that data had spread from having it over in the restaurant where you're getting this nice kind of improved service over to the bank where maybe that's something I don't really want the bank to know. And I think that's the key thing about, I think there's two sides to it. And the first is giving us more control over where our data goes and not giving the, like you say, the corporations the, the right, I suppose, to just sell the data to whoever they like. So if I'm going to take a service, and, and we know this, if you take free services from the likes of Google, well, something happens in return from that. And the thing that happens is, they get to sell your attention. Um, I guess what you might like to know is, well, that's as far as that goes, and I'd like to have the control to say what should happen next. So I think that's a, a key thing. Um, and then I think the second key thing is, 
I suppose maybe having protections around what people do with the insights that they can generate from data. And actually, I mentioned the education example, um, and Alan from DCU is here who, who did this work. And I th think it's a really interesting example of generating those insights is good. There are good things and bad things that you could do on the back of that. So in that example, they're collecting data about first-year students, and they're monitoring the student's performance to say whether a student is on the way to being in trouble in their exams or whether they're on the way to, to doing OK. Um, and if you could see that early enough, that, that sounds like an interesting insight. But there's lots of different things you could do with that. So if you get that insight that a student is on the way for trouble, well, maybe a nice thing you could do is someone's going to go and talk to them and help them out um, and try and get them over whatever troubles they're having. Or you might say, well, we should cut them. Right? That student is going nowhere. Uh, let's get rid of them. That's wasted resources. Uh, they're not on track. That would be a bad thing to do. Uh, but you could do that. Or on the flip side, I think a really interesting question was, if you have a student who looks like they're doing great, should you tell them three or four months out from their exams? Right? So maybe that's a bad bit of information. If you're working really hard and someone comes down and goes, you have this nailed, you know, you're doing brilliant, you might kick back and start to relax, and maybe that's a bad bit of information to give you. So I think that example highlights, and I know Alan and DCU spend an awful lot of time thinking about the right way um, to deal with those issues, but it gives a nice example of Generating the insight in the first place isn't isn't really a problem. It's there are, I suppose, acceptable things you might do with that insight, and maybe unacceptable things. And I think there's a really big open question of how do you set the rules about that. Um, so we have things like data protection that says, um, I guess you can't use certain bits of personal data to disadvantage people. Uh, but that gets that gets very tricky. Going back to I think the examples that we showed there that from very benign-looking data, you can extract all kinds of interesting signals. Mm -hmm. um, and making the rules about that becomes very, very tricky. OK. Thank you. There's another question somewhere in the middle there. Maybe it's gone. Yeah? <clears throat> Hi, I'm Rafael. Uh, thanks for the presentation. I'm glad you got my classification of the gender <laughs> right. <laughs> I have one question about using the machine learning or any data science or artificial intelligence um, in health space. So if, for instance, if you use this technology or this um, all this, this data science and, and uh, intelligence stuff, um, if you want to use that for um, detecting or even influencing or changing behavior of, for instance, a very concrete example, um, medication non-adherence. So why are people not taking, deliberately not taking, their prescribed medication or their treatments. Do you have any insights or opinion about that? Yeah, so I think that there are good examples of people using data to do that kind of thing. So that idea of using data for the, the nudge um, is interesting. And, and where people use it, I suppose, well is you can use data to recognize the kinds of interventions that are going to work for different kinds of people. And I think that there's really good opportunity. Again, going back to that idea of things being personalized. So one size doesn't fit everybody. So by looking at data and looking at what's worked for people in the past and what hasn't worked, and looking at the kinds of people that different things have worked for. So the example with the energy use, I know, was a bit simplistic about showing people pictures of polar bears. But exactly that idea does work, where you can say, OK, from the data, I can recognize that this is this kind of person. And based on what's worked for that kind of person in the past, we can say this is likely to work um, for, for this other person now in terms of, let's say, encouraging them to, to stay on a course of medication. Um, I know people do get 
people get very stressed about it in terms of there's a feeling of being manipulated by some of those things and maybe we don't like the idea of being manipulated and there's a, a balance to be struck um, in that but there's definitely good examples of people using it. I hope that's what you mean by the question using data for those exactly that application um, there's also I think health is really really interesting because health is an example where data makes a big difference so I, I think one of the things that uh, you, you look at doctors and people I always think people give out about uh, the people give out about the leaving cert a lot and give out that it's a, a test of memory, um, but for doctors, memory is that's a great test, right? So when you go into a doctor, one of the things that doctors have to do is remember an awful lot of things. The best way to get diagnosed by a doctor is if he's seen whatever you've got somewhere before, and an awful lot of health mistakes, I guess, are because the doctor that you happen to be sitting sitting in front of hasn't seen whatever your problem is before. And there's a lot of data kind of swirling around medical interactions that can be harnessed in a really good way um, to help people. I know one really example that I really like is um, discharge reports in hospitals. So discharge reports are still primarily paper-based. And doctors scribble down lots of information about a patient before the patient goes home. And there's a big problem. We have a big problem with in Irish hospitals about patients being discharged too early. Um, and one of the some really nice work where people are looking at those discharge reports and extracting patterns from those that suggest this problem of a, an early discharge and that interventions happen. So rather than that patient being left at home, something happens to try and catch whatever that problem is. So I think the medical area and health in general um, has, I think, real potential. Okay, thank you. Um, unless there's a, okay, I think we'll make this the last question, if that's okay. Um. Um. Hi, I was just curious, uh, regarding your mining of that information from the Wi-Fi network here, whether that was something you needed permission for from the RIA, or you just have access to it if you're... Yeah, so sorry, so it's not mined from the Wi-Fi here at all. So basically, you can take... So the my laptop happens to have a router that can, or a, a network card that can run in monitor mode um, in it, and Mac laptops do, lots of laptops do, or you can buy a little external router and you're not connecting to any of the infrastructure in the building. You're basically just putting that in the middle of the conversation and sucking it all in. Um, and the interesting question about it is, no, you don't need any permission because, and you could, well, you couldn't stop people doing. It. So the, the people here, for example, don't know that it's going on. There's no real way for them to block that. And that was the question in the airport um, that mm. came up around that about, is it okay for the airport to be harvesting that information without asking you first? Uh, and it's an interesting open question. But the, the key thing with that is you just sit in the middle of the conversation and suck it all in. Um, so you don't need to ask anyone. Well, yeah, there's no technical permission that you need. Okay, I think we'll perhaps leave it there. Um, I just want a few people I want to thank before we finish. Um, I'm here, I should say, representing Alan Smeaton, who's the chair of the uh, Committee of Engineering and Computer Sciences, who couldn't be here this evening. I want to thank a few people from the committee uh, who helped with putting this together. Uh, I see Connor Brennan from DCU here. I see Will, Will Goodbody, the technology correspondent of RTE, who's also on the committee who helped us. Um, I also want to thank Yvonne Graham and all the staff in the academy here who, who helped to organize this evening and be here this evening. And I'd like to thank uh, Eugene Kennedy, as secretary of the Royal Irish Academy, for being here uh, this evening. Um, I want to thank you for being here in such numbers and hearing which, uh, what I hope you agree was a really, really fascinating talk. So my last thank you is to the speaker who's given us such an entertaining and interesting speech here this evening. Thank you. <laughs>